Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you, Dr. O'Donnell. It's an honor to be here. Teresa probably would have come out to this campus the year it started, but I married her and kept her in DC. Um, tonight's topic is, actually what I'm going to give you is really a synthesis of all I've learned through my career as a clinical psychologist and then in public policy and then after that back into research and communicating. And it's this whole delivery is, was prepared directly to equip you mentally for what you're heading into because you as graduates are going to live out life very differently than myself and Teresa and people my age. You're going into a very different society. Let me, um, let's start. Hmm? By the way, I, the blue is a bit dark here, but Marriage and Religion Research Institute, and when I came up with the acronym, of course, what immediately jumped to mind was Mary, and that's why there's blue. It's under her patronage that this is here at the Evangelical Run Family Research Council, and they all know that. <laughs> and they like it. And actually, the day that the shooting took place, I don't know if you remember, where a, a man came in determined to kill as many people as he could in Family Research Council, and had 26 Chick-fil-A's to put in the mouth of everybody he killed. I think he's the, the only one we've heard of on record who's actually entered a building armed and shot, who never killed anybody. That day was September the 8th. Our ladies, the, uh, no, it was August 15th. Sorry, I mix up our ladies' birthday and uh, our conception, and it was the feast of the, of the uh, Assumption and she did protect us. More about that as an anecdote. Let me get on with the... I'm going to start at the beginning. That's, uh, the, that's supposed to be the Garden of Eden up there. <laughs> Every, everything started off fairly well, but fairly quickly, our first parents had a rather dysfunctional family, Cain and Abel. Pretty dysfunctional. It's not often you get brothers murdering each other, or one murdering the other. And then if you go on after that, looking at family, one of the big things that is very clear going through the Old Testament is that right up until our Lord came on earth, there's a struggle all the time. And there's quite a, almost, an, I don't want to use the word natural, but it's probably the best, a lot of polygamy in family. You go down through the patriarchs, you see it a lot on matters sexual, right through the Old Testament, a lot of ambivalence, a lot of stuff that probably shouldn't have been going on, but without the grace of the church and the incarnation, um, it probably was unavoidable. And here we have up here is, this is you know the, one of the patriarchs with his spouse and his concubine. One of the things actually in the Jewish tradition, even after Christ and right through early Christendom and right up until about the year 1000 or 1100, 
Polygamy was not often practiced, but was practiced and was legitimate, and stayed there for quite some long time. So on matters family, uh, there's always been a struggle on this area. And then, of course, along comes our Lord, if I can put it so tritely, and changed all of human history. And, one of, and this is going to be central, actually. His baptism, in which he was teaching us, and gradually over his years of teaching and preaching, introducing us to the Blessed Trinity. And one of the things to keep in mind is that all of us who are baptized, all of us here, are already sons and daughters. We are already part of the family of the Blessed Trinity. And this is going to be key because when you marry, you are already a member of the family of the Trinity. So you have a daughter within the family who's fallen for this guy in the family, and he's fallen for her. And they come before the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And before them say, we want to get married. We pledge ourselves to each other. We vow to be husband and wife till death us do part. They are the ministers of the sacrament. The church is only the witness. They are the ministers. And those words by one of the family to another of the family in the presence of the head of the family, they by those words become family. And once family, always family. There is no breaking it. And the basis of that is the fact that we are baptized. By baptism, you became a daughter of God. You became a son of God. And should the two of you marry, you know, permanently declaring yourself family within the family and with God once there, always there. Unless the unspeakable should happen after your death. And then after our Lord's resurrection and that, the Great Commission, go out and preach. But before he went to heaven and while he was preaching, he dealt with matters sexual in, uh, first of all, very forgiving. The woman at the well, by the way, was the one to whom he probably first began to reveal his divinity. We look chronologically, at least that's I think many people's take on it. But she was one who already had, if you see my charts on family structure, she's way out here. She has had how many husbands? Five or six or you know, quite a few. She's way out there, but she is the one to whom he first begins to reveal his divinity. Keep that in mind. When you look at your friends or your brothers or your brothers and sisters' friends and all the people you went to school with who are out there doing all sorts of crazy things and maybe on their fifth or sixth husband. Well, our Lord first began to reveal his divinity to somebody like that. Later, you know, the woman caught in adultery, that he is without sin, cast the first stone, and then tells her, go sin no more. And then Mary Magdalene, who, you know, t- washes his feet and 
pours ointment. He's very, very forgiving of sexual sins. And yet, at the same time, he's the one who brought to end the practice of polygamy. Not only that, the practice of divorce. Uh, I work at an evangelical place, talk often to evangelical ministers. And one of the things I say, look, I can understand how some people might have different interpretations of what our Lord says about divorce, but there's absolutely no misinterpreting what he says about remarriage. Totally, absolutely forbidden. Remember the apostles' reaction? In that case, it'd be better if nobody got married. <laughs> Some of them must have had a difficult marriage and must have been contemplating otherwise. Um, the other thing that our Lord did, three big things on matter sexual, the other was to his disciples. You cannot even look at a woman lustfully, but you've already committed adultery in your heart. Now, adultery is way up there with murder anytime you hear our Lord list the sins. Pretty heavy stuff. That was really raising the bar. First, no divorce. Now you can't even think of the way David acted out. You can't even begin to think of it or you're already deep in trouble. And then the third big sexual issue that he dealt with was celibacy. He introduced that. And that changed the whole world. And changed the way Christians live. I, I have fun reminding my evangelical friends who are very high on St. Paul and quote him a lot. They're very high in the Old Testament and on the, on the epistles. It's interesting, they don't spend as much time on the gospel. No, it's strange. Actually, I think there's a, a guilty avoidance, my personal interpretation. My apologies to my evangelical friends here, if there are any. Um, but St. Paul would almost have everybody celibate if he had had his way. And they tend to forget that, too. But then the early Christians, let's, the time they were in were pagan times. And this is my depiction of paganism here. You've got some Bacchanalia and, you know, Rome, Romulus and Rufus and Nero, etc. I'm going to leave that there. This was the period in which Christianity grew. This was the culture within Christians began to live family life. And we all, you're all very aware of, gradually as the pagans around and Romans began to notice the difference with Christians, that famous quote, see how they love one another. Well, where did this, this love most take place? It was in their family life. And in their family life, they were very, very different from those around them. Let's go down to some of the things that was all around them. Concubinage. Concubines, well, that was already there, even among the Jews in Rome. Some Jews had three, four concubines at the time. Not all, not many. You had to be pretty wealthy to pull that off. Cohabitation, cohabitation wasn't too common in Rome because they had concubinage and it was, there was a sort of, right, not a regulation, but a cultural understanding. A concubine had her place in the family and so did her children. So there was certain duties and obligations. Divorce was beginning by the time Christianity began. Divorce was becoming common. 
The Roman family for centuries had been quite strong and divorce was just, just not done. But around the period of uh, Octavius, of uh, Augustine, divorce began to come in and Augustine got, um, Augustus, sorry, the, the emperor, he became rather concerned and introduced a lot of family law to try and stem the breakdown of the family. It didn't work, but he did his best. Homosexuality was quite common in a very different form. It wasn't in the form we have it today. It was generally wealthy men, heads of families, had post-pubescent boys as their homosexual consorts. Pedophilia, we don't know about because it doesn't seem to be widely practiced. Pornography was quite common, but nothing near like the way it is here today. Contraception, widely practiced, and some were fairly skilled at it. Infanticide and abortion were all common. Now, all of these have very deleterious effects, and if you want to get into the effects, go to our website, marry.us, and we've got loads of stuff where you can go through it. I'm not going to bore you with the outcomes tonight, but every single one of them have deleterious effects on the adults, and then those effects are carried on. If the children who are growing up in such families, they catch the cold even stronger. Divorce, we've got a lot on that. Any outcome, not everybody who's a child of a divorce suffers all the outcomes, but across all the major tasks of life, divorce weakens a person. In family life, much more likely to divorce later on. In church, there's, it's very interesting if you look at it. Those who divorce, who stay worshiping, not among all by any means, but among many, you have a fall down. They tend to change their church and go to a less strict church. Catholics become evangelicals. Evangelicals, tough ones, get to the softer evangelical and so on, and it slides down, down. Not for everyone by any means, but that pattern is there. Um, education has a huge bad effect. Anybody who teaches can see that on kids. And so on. Marketplace. Divorce alone. This is one of the things we did at Mary. Uh, Dr. Henry Patricus. Little known fact, but we've proven it. Divorce alone has slowed down the growth rate of the American economy by one-sixth every year for the last 20 years. Another piece of research we're coming out with that's related to divorce and that we haven't published it yet. Marriage is critical to the amount of money that goes into the tax pool. On average, married couples contribute 30% more to the tax pool than an equivalent male and female, if you pair them up controlling for everything. So as marriage has declined, actually our tax pool is getting smaller. And at the same time, actually, there's big draws on the tax pool, so it's no wonder we're going into debt. And the only place to go looking for the extra taxes are corporations, because the families won't be able to provide it. On every one of these things, actually, on homosexuality, you've probably heard, and there's more research coming out very soon. Um, I've just been reviewing it. On every outcome you can imagine, the children raised by homosexual couples do worse, significantly worse, as a group. None of these apply to every individual on any of these outcomes, but as a group. Mark Regneris, a recent convert to the Catholic faith, is a professor of sociology at the University of Austin. You've probably heard of his work. He's gotten massive grief, but 
he's coming right back and going deeper. But other research is coming out now on the effects of, the emotional effects on children of homosexual, uh, homosexuals, homosexual parents. And from very, very big federal data sets, and this is going to cause quite a ruckus, but it's there. Pornography, massive deleterious effects. And by the way, a couple of years ago, the Cardinal Newman Society came to me because the presidents of small Catholic colleges like Christendom, one of their top concerns was pornography use among their students. Let me tell you, guys, it destroys your sexual capacity. You want to see further? We got a synthesis paper on it. Dig into it. Crazy to go near it. But we all understand the pull it has, but stay away from it. It's like crack cocaine. Bad for the brain, pornography, awful for your sexual capacities and for your intimacy and for your future marriage and everything. Contraception, the single biggest moral heresy ever in human history. It's destroying nations. Europe is disappearing um, and so on. We've got a synthesis paper of this. It's been in the works for about six years. It'll come out in the next couple of months. I hope you all get it and spread it around here. From the social science data, the effects of contraception on families and couples on society at large. A lot of them you already know. A lot of um. okay. Coming back to the history, the early so the early Christians lived in places where all these things were common. Why did I go down through that? Because this is the world you're entering into, and in some ways the world you're going into is worse. In some ways than the sexual paganism and the family paganism of the early Christian times. And we'll get into that later. So you've got to, you're, you are being called to a family life where your models are those early Christians in those very tough times at the beginning of the church. That's your vocation, everybody here. Okay, back after over the next thousand years, Christianity spread through Europe and up, and that's up there to the year 800. By 1200, they had Sweden and Norway and further in towards Russia and that. One of the hidden things that came as the monks, and there were mainly monks who did, not solely, but mainly monks who did the missionary work of spreading the church, one of the quiet hidden things that went with it was Christian marriage. And historians have not paid too much attention to that. But within that, by that going, this was a massive gift to all of Western civilization. And it isn't until the last 30 years that we can begin to realize what a gift it was. Because with the social sciences now of the 20th century, at the same time as there's this pullback from marriage and from Christianity, and we have the data. And you can see that on every single outcome, I've spent a lifetime at this, there isn't the federal surveys, there are dozens of them. On every single outcome measured, 
adults and children from intact married families do best and every other family structure is weaker and lower and it wobbles between the different family structures. But always, always, the intact married family does best, be they adults or children, on education, on longevity, on health, on happiness, and we'll get into it, on matters sexual, on savings, on happiness, on mental health, you name it. The intact married family does best. So with the withdrawal from marriage, what we're actually getting is a, a weakening of the whole social capacity of nations, not just of individuals, but of nations. Okay, 1,200, 1,300, most of Western Europe. But then up here in the top, oh, what did I do there? Let's go forward. And I didn't have any Irish whiskey. There's a wrinkle, actually. After the split, um, the orthodox, the two wings became apparent. The orthodox have not kept the full faithfulness. Divorce you, is permitted once in most orthodox disciplines, which if you go back to the theology of baptism is rather strange. If you permit it once, why not permit it twice, three times? But this whole invalidating of once family, always family, if baptized, and committing your vows in front of the Blessed Trinity. And then, of course, along came Luther, and he really put a spanner in the works on matters. He began it. He didn't promulgate it, but he permitted it and didn't think it was good, but okay. And then shortly after him, and those of us from Ireland don't remember this guy with any fondness, Henry VIII, who really set the Anglican Church up, well, that whole crazy history, very ironic history, because if you fast forward, this photograph down at the bottom, if you can see it, is Lambeth Conference, the result of the church that he was occasioned to start, 1930. Lambeth was, you have this gradual, Retreat from, with divorce, expanded, expanded still more, even though the practice was still frowned on. But then in 1930, you have the breaking of the universal Christian tradition against contraception happening in the Anglican Church, which actually, if you read through the discourse, it's very interesting. Those in the Anglican Church who didn't want to, this to go forward we're pointing out to the rest, look, in the Anglican Church, we have no moral theologians. We look for our moral theology to the mother church. And we're no experts of moral theology and going way out on a limb here and how right they were. The year that they did that, of course, Pius XI, last day of the year, came out with Casti Canubi reaffirming the traditional Christian teaching on contraception, which is that it is an integral part of the purpose of marriage. It is why we are male and female. Uh, that's the way, the, as Dr. O'Donnell quoted, quoting John Paul II, the path to the future is through the family. Yes, through the family, through mom and dad, through male and female, comes the child and comes the future. 
Pius XII reaffirming it in his address to midwives, Paul VI, Humanae Vitae, and did he ever suffer for that? No, I don't know if, I've affirmed it now, confirmed it three times, it's, it's almost a hidden secret. Do you know he's being beatified next month? Yes, yes, it's a quiet secret. So let's, let's get that word out and celebrate it. <laughs> And then, of course, John Paul II, who came on with this magnificent theology of the body. And here you can see the Holy Spirit working. Because when he started, and he started back as Professor Wojtyla, and then Bishop Wojtyla, and then Cardinal Wojtyla, and then finally John Paul, John Paul II, all the time developing and going deeper and preparing the church for what was clearly going to be already is very difficult times on family, getting us all ready. Now, if you go through, this here actually is by, this is Pat Fagan's theology, philosophy, sociology, all wrapped up in one icon. <laughs> the Blessed Trinity, mom and dad, husband and wife, and the child. Marriage is the foundational relationship in society. Out of it comes everything else. It's very interesting. I, if you go back, actually, if you think of it, there are five major institutions in society. The family, the church, school. There are three who are interlocked. We'll come back to them. The marketplace, or the economy, and government. These three, all five, are integral in the family. All those tasks are in the family. There's the task of family, there's the task of church, education, marketplace, earning your bread, and government. Mam and dad are the government, right? And uh, now, those tasks are in you, a full life. If your obituary says you did well on family, on church, on school, on marketplace, on government, you got a pretty good obituary. I hope I get something like that. Well, Teresa, don't put that on my tombstone, but something like that. <laughs> but a couple who marry, and by the way, guys and girls, this is a good way to filter before you even begin to think yes. Check him out, check her out on family, on church, on school, on marketplace, and on government. And if he or she gets a good check mark, a strong one on Arch 5, you got good prospect there. And if the two of you have your act together on both of those and you get married, you're way to the races. And your kids are going to automatically learn, as you did if you were blessed with parents who had that, how to be family, how to be church, how to learn, how to work, and how to govern themselves, and how to be citizens as well. These tasks are embedded deep in the family, and as you grow up, and you're just about finished your growing up now, if your parents have so formed you, they give you as great citizens to the rest of the country. There are many kids who don't get that formation. Okay, this is just some of the fruit of John Paul II, I want to, because the, his work... It's going to be central to your life in a practical way. You don't all have to become theologians. 
but you have to master in your lives what he has laid out for you. Here we have John Paul II up there. Actually, this is him with Carl Anderson, who started with the American John Paul II Institute. I know many Christendom graduates have gone on there. Down here is a man I suspect may become important, Don Renzo Benetti. He was in the Vatican when John Paul II was delivering his Wednesday audiences on the theology of the body, falling in love with it, and then at the end realizing the beautiful picture that John Paul II had laid out in the family was rather different than what was being practiced by the Italians all around him. So he got his bishop's permission, left the Vatican, and became a parish priest, pastor, and has spent the last 20 years figuring out how ordinary families can live the theology of the body very well. The first, he has written a lot. I was telling Dr. O'Donnell and the, the Archbishop Paglia, who's the chair, he's the, what's the right word, the chairman of the Council on the Family, loves his work, and he will be presenting in Philadelphia next year. But his American compatriot, his American collaborator, get this, is Truro Anglican Church here in Fairfax, Virginia. And Pope Francis, just two weeks ago, called Archbishop Pagli in to tell him, look, the family and marriage, by its very nature, is very ecumenical. So we have to reach out to our other faiths. And actually, they are dying for it. Let me tell you, I was at a meeting last year, second time in North Dakota, around the table, had given a talk, small talk, three tables like this, sat down, and there was a diehard Lutheran slash Baptist minister sitting across the table. And he had gone on quite Lutheran before, but when I sat down after I had given my talk, he turned to me and he said, you Catholics, it's very important you stay faithful to your teaching. The rest of us are depending on you. <laughs> no, no. They know. They sense. The rest of us are depending on you. This is the way forward. Okay. Let's get, that's background, and you're all probably familiar with it. I'm setting you up for this. Five basic institutions, I've been through those. That's your mom and dad. They really had their act together on those five, so the family had their act together, and you became a great adult, knowing how to do family, church, school, marketplace, and government. They present you to society, and to the extent we have children who grow up in that, we have strong citizens, and we are a strong country. However, Here's what's been happening to the United States since 1950. Back here, in 1950, for every 100 children born, that year, 12 children entered a broken family. Four threw out of wedlock births, eight because their parents divorced that year. And over the next 50 years, that brings you up to the year 2000, you can see what happened, divorce, and the out of wedlock births went way up. It's gone further even since then. Now, all across the world, this has been happening. And on top of this, and adding massively to this, if you go here, because 
was through this whole period here you have the sexual revolution, which really means the contraceptive revolution, because contraception is the thing that sort of tempted people and facilitates all this. And what do we have now as a result of contraception? Well, here are three Catholic countries that are going out of existence. Spain, Italy, and Greece. Greece I include in the Orthodox Catholic there. They traded places for about 15 years with the, as the lowest fertility rate countries in the world. Japan, I've been at it longer. In Japan, you can kiss a goodbye. As a matter of fact, in my demographic book, it's already in the coffin. It's only a matter of when it's going to be buried. Europe is disappearing, and peoples are flooding in from North Africa, East Asia, and in. Why? Because there's a population vacuum. Peter Kraft is probably well known to all of you. I was at a talk he gave uh, about 15 years ago. And somebody at the end of the talk gave a question on the Muslim issue. I'll never forget Crave's answer. As he said, look, if Christians won't give God the children he desires, and Muslims will, whom will he bless? Well, I suspect, and my hope is actually, the Muslims here, if we live family life the way we should, and if Europeans do, they will come into the church, and particularly Muslim women, who in the West begin to experience in practical ways what true Christian-inspired political freedoms really are. And that's, that already is changing Muslim praxis, and you will have a whole who knows what happening within the Muslim community through the women. And of course, we know Our Lady is playing a key part in this. She has appeared in a number of, in, in Egypt. I think even the, the, the whole 1917, which was mainly about uh, communist Russia, but also it was in Fatima. And Fatima plays a key role for Muslims, and they honor Our Lady. There's a great pro-life office here in Northern Virginia, and a, a good doctor there who doesn't distribute contraceptives and devout Muslims come there. And he has gotten a number of uh, Tepiak awards, it's the Tepiak Center, but he's gotten a number of awards, and he has a plaque of Our Lady of uh, Guadalupe on the wall. You don't see it when you're coming in, but when you're going out of his office, you do. And he tells me that when Muslim women go out of the office, they stop before that plaque and they give a deep, reverent bow towards Blessed Mother, happening here in Northern Virginia. Don't know what God has in mind, but he's stirring the pot somewhere or another there. Present America. Family structure is constantly changing, so at Mary we've determined we'll measure it when children are at age 17. How intact is the American family? We measure it when the children are 17. And at age 17 today, only 46% of American 17-year-olds are in an intact family. 54% their mom and dad have split either by never getting together without a wedlock, cohabiting and splitting, or marrying and divorcing. Among blacks, 
17%. American Indians, 24. Hispanic, and this is a cause for real concern, 40. White, 54. Asian American, 62. Now, some of the older folk here will, will have been around when Daniel Patrick Moynan had a famous report back in the Johnson Kennedy days called The Case for the Negro Family. At that stage, the, which was done in 19, no, that's, it says 41 there, it wasn't it, it was probably 61. I never noticed that mistake before. Oh wait, no, no, it's not. Uh, I'm mixing things up there. It was 65 Kennedy Johnson, I think it was, yeah, it was in the Johnson era. He was an assistant secretary of labor had been a professor of sociology at Harvard and then appointed to that. He wrote the book, very concerned what was happening in the black family. The black family then was as strong as the Asian family is now. We're all sliding down, culturally, demographically, whatever. What's happening out there, it's a slide down. And the momentum is all down. This is part of the reason why I say you're, you will be living out your lives in a place where family is more likely to be more and more broken than it even is today. Some of the effects of that, well, I've given you the, the impact of divorce on the economy, but what's actually happening? Uh, businessmen will tell you this, businessmen who have been in business for quite some time. The young person coming in to start work, first job, today has much less capacity for hard work than those who came in 40 years ago. Kids, young adults, less of the, the impact of the breakdown in the family is there. We've talked about the less tax-paying capacity. So what we really have in this 46 versus 54, mom and dad split, mom and dad together. We're made to belong. The child, newborn, who does the newborn really need to belong to when first born? And who needs to belong to the newborn? Mother. Nature has set it up that way. And the mother who takes good care of the child, wrapping her arms around it, cleaning, feeding, nurturing, taking care all the time, anchors the child well in reality. Clinically, if that doesn't happen, you get all sorts of distortions that play out in the child's life for the rest of their life. You're shaped a lot by how your mother treats you those first early stage. We're made to belong. It is our most fundamental need. And many of you have ever experienced, if any of you fell in love, you don't need to put any, up any hands, but just remember sometime in high school maybe you fell in love for somebody across the aisle or some sweet girl at school or you, some handsome guy, and it looks like he might be interested, and maybe you date for once or twice, but then he or she says no, and crushes you. Mm -hmm. Oh, the pain of that. Real pain, because it's the first time you experience rejection. Rejection of you for who you were. Now, it's not a terribly serious issue when you're team, but when you're young under that stage, it's serious for you, and the pain is real. That's rejection. Well, culturally, what we've been putting in place is very deep rejection. We have already become, in the United States, dominantly a culture of rejection, which is essentially a pagan thing. Christians don't reject each other. And Christian marriage 
Never. Oh, it may go up and down. It may get very difficult. As a matter of fact, that's part of the cross. I guarantee you, talk to anybody who's been married a long time, cross is there. You don't dodge it. Now, going into marriage, you're hoping you will. Oh, no, I got the great guy. He's never going to marry. I got the sweetest girl. Sorry, guys. Sorry, girls. It's there. Actually, it's the royal road. It's the only way through which we grow. But that's another whole for the philosophers and for the theologians. So what we're putting in place and what we're getting more and more is an is a nation of alienation. You could see this very much in the recent Ferguson things. You see this come out. That's where the black family, most broken down, boys without fathers, three, four generations of men without fathers. So what you get is depression, anger, and envy. The three big takeouts from the breakdown of the family. Here's some other data. There's been surveys being done of, of teachers for decades and decades. Between 1940 and 1962, the things that teachers most complained about was talking, chewing gum, making noise, running in the halls, getting out of turn in line. <laughs> the dominant ones now, public high schools, rape, robbery, assault, burglary, and arson. Teacher surveys done every year. This data was given by William James, one of the top education sociologists in the country. Something to keep in mind on the, whole, on the whole homosexual issue, one of the breakdown of the family, is causing a rise in homosexuality. This is data we released, but uh, unwelcome data, the press will never promulgate it. In the intact married family, nationally, there's a, of children of intact families, there's a rate of about 2.5% of the children grow up with a homosexual orientation or attraction. In families where the children grow up where father is not present, broken family, father not present, it's three times higher, 7.5%. So given that, you're going to see a massive rise in homosexual orientation in the black family, and in the Hispanic family, also in the white and also in the Asian. Because the body count, the, the damage, the probability of, well, the sexual has gone very wrong between mom and dad. So among the kids, this happens. However, let's look at some of the good news. This is good, bad news. Very good news for Christendom students. Recent chart, which is a, a confirmation of research we did back 10 years ago, we've just updated it on very recent survey data. What we're looking at here are all Americans who've ever been married. That's the population we're looking at. Now we're looking at how many of them are still in their first marriage. Depending on the number of sexual partners they've had in their lifetime before marriage. Those who had none, in other words, those who are monogamous and their only sexual partner is the one they've married. Almost 100%, high 90s, 95, 96%, still in their first marriage. Those who had one sexual partner, and by the way, the, the men are the red and the blue are the women. And ladies, this is 
this is for everybody. And I wonder, I hope this chart gets into every high school in the United States, every middle school, and into every parent's hand. If a girl has a sexual partner before she marries, had sexual intercourse with somebody other than their husband, among those women, it's a little over 60%. So you get about a 35% drop in the probability of staying in the first marriage. If they had two sexual partners, it drops down to 50, and so on. The men, it has a similar effect, but more gradually. And they don't, as it were, catch up with each other until the fifth. Men and women are made different. The first time, I, when I saw this, the first time of the replication, which was a couple of months ago, what immediately jumped to mind to me on this was, my goodness, the Mediterranean cultures that had chaperoning of girls makes eminent sense. On this, they are the weaker sex. But it's not just saving them. It's saving their future husbands and their children. On everything else, guys, we're the weaker sex. On a few things, they are. But on almost everything else. Maybe on strength, we're not. But Here's another piece of critical data. This area has not been well explored. It's a bit of a, a from where you're sitting, a tricky chart to look at. But what we're comparing here are those people who practice natural family planning, which are devout Catholics and increasingly uh, devout uh, young evangelicals, where it's taking off. And what we're comparing here, then, are general population Catholics, and then this is the general US non-Catholic population. And we're looking at how successful have parents rated themselves in raising their kids. Very interesting. Those who practice natural family planning, almost 97% of them say very successful. And only a few not successful. General Catholic population, less than half, think they did a good job. And almost 60% think they were not successful. By and large, these are contraceptive couples. And they're worse off, actually, than the general population. So that's a little throwaway. There's a whole lot to be explored here and next to no research going on in this area. Now, I want to, here's one of the other great things and it's going to tie right back into the theology of the body. I'm going to pull these things together again. The sociology of religion is amazing. And it's now getting, for me, a bit boring. Because here's the way it goes. This is a typical thing. On every, there are eight federal surveys. The US government is the only government in the world that tracks religious practice in a lot of the major surveys. Not all, but a lot. And more than enough for us to get a very good handle. It's the only place actually where there's a really robust sociology of religion going on. Here's the way it goes. And all the positive outcomes, this is the way it goes. Those who worship weekly do best. A couple of times a month, a couple of times a year, never. Here we're looking at grade point average of, of American kids. This is a snapshot of America. This is a huge sample. Three 2.9, 2.7, 2.6. I could go through all the other outcomes. And if you want them, you go to marry.us and you can look at it. We got this Mapping America project. We got 130 outcomes, all from federal surveys. And the only thing that really changes is the slant. Sometimes it's dramatic. Other times it's, sometimes it's really dramatic, other times it's, it's small. 
On the bad things, yeah, they're, you know, this is a hard drug use. It goes up that way. So while on the negatives, it's going the other direction, and the positives, it's going that. Now, here's what we've done here. Same survey, massive big one. You combine, looking at children, those from the intact married family that worships weekly. This is repeating a grade. They're the lowest. The broken family that doesn't worship at all, kids from there, a massive difference. And then this is the intact family doesn't worship at all, and this is the broken family that worships weekly. Now here's the way it goes at every outcome. On every single outcome measured, the intact married family, both adults and children, come out dramatically stronger on every outcome. And on the opposite end, where things are weakest and worst, is the broken family doesn't worship God at all, and then the other two, the married family doesn't worship, and the intact family that worships, or the non-intact worships every week, they trade places. They go up and down depending on the measure. And you can see all of that. This here is looking at that grade point average where we were looking at, you remember the slope going down? Here we combine the children, we combine marriage and worship together. By far, the intact married family worships God weekly. Poor kids from the non-intact don't worship at all. And then you can see the other two, almost the same in this particular outcome. So you get that stuff in the middle. Ah, this, let's go back one. This is very interesting to show this to my liberal friends. The percentage who feel thrilled, excited during intercourse with current sexual partner. Excuse that language, but that's the federal government's language. So, you know, intact, married, who worship God weekly, have the most enjoyable marital relations, by far. And the people who think they have the best, non-intact, don't worship at all, have the least. And then, actually here, you see the broken, who worship God weekly, are doing better, actually, than those who don't. You get all sorts of anomalies. Those who feel guilty, old Manichaean stuff, well, there are a number there who should feel guilty, but uh, in this graph. But here you get a bit of Manichaeism. There's some intact married who worship God weekly who still feel a bit guilty, but it's extraordinarily low. Here you can see the rest. Even on matters sexual, in which the whole sexual revolution is taking place outside, you've nothing to worry about. If only they knew. That's my quick take. I want to just introduce you, not bore you with all the social science data. Here's how I can sum it up. The social science is well done, always. Illustrate the way God made man. They don't prove anything. They're not the place to go for proof. But they're great for illustration. And they have a great role, I think, in supporting natural law, the Ten Commandments, good philosophy, all that. Now, I want to do it very quickly. How do we get here? How did we get to this mess where we now have only 46% of our kids at age 17 in an intact family? How did the black family get where it is at 17%? Well, let's go back. We can start. You can go back earlier than this. You go all the way back to Cain and Abel. But let's start with Rousseau. This is Rousseau down here in his later favorite dress. Uh, this is the Marquis de Sade, the pornographer, pervert, who began to publicize and break taboos and get this. And this here actually is a depiction of during the French Revolution, 
is when the sexual revolution began in earnest with these two guys, but also where there was an occasion where in glorifying reason they paraded a woman who actually was a prostitute, brought her and enshrined her on the high altar of Notre Dame and danced around her. That was the beginning of the sexual revolution. Very deliberate, doing away with the Christian view of marriage and sexuality. This guy up here is Frederick Engels, Marx's co-author of the Communist Manifesto. And Engels is very important, destructively important. He's the first one who articulated and said, for the communist state, for the materialist state, for the destruction of all that we honor, you've got to remove both the family and the church. Nietzsche, who is a, his own figure, comes along a little later and has quite a deleterious effect on many things. This guy over here is Havelock Ellis, who was beginning the sexual revolution in England, mainly in a literary and sort of academic way. But he, and this here is Margaret Sanger, who visited him, and it seems for a while they were lovers. She brought this, the sexual revolution in earnest back to the US, I don't think she, we leave God to judge how she was in the beginning, but wanting to, to, to do good. This is her husband, by the way, who was a socialist, and she lay back in the early 1900s deeply involved in socialist matters. This here is John D. Rockefeller Jr., who became her big financier, and who later also had a lot to do with financing this into academic centers and getting her whole view of the family deep into academia. This here is, that began to flower. This is later in the 1960s. Gloria Steinem, famous for, uh, what's the, well, it's attributed to her, but she was, really came from someone else that she pointed out. But a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. What that really means, there is no complementarity between the sexes. This man down here is Herbert Marcuse, Marcuse, who back in the Vietnam War days, by then was an older man, but he is one of, there was a famous group of French, of a German sociologist, Marxist, at the Frankfurt School. Now they were communists, and when Hitler came in, he hated communists, they had to flee. Academics, communists, bent on the destruction of, the, of all things Christian, of the whole social order as we know it, but not the way Lenin and later Mao did it, not the military way. They were going to go by deconstructing the institutions. Gramsci in Italian had a great phrase, the long, slow march through the institutions. They were practitioners of this. When they fled Germany, guess where they landed? Columbia University. And from there had a massive influence on teachers college and a lot of stuff. One of the people they, who did her doctorate on it, some of them, this is a Kate Millett, one of the founders of NOW, National Organization of Women. This woman here is key. Uh, Shulamith Firestone wrote two books, only one really well known, The Dialectic of Sex. Back in the 60s, brilliant little book where she brought and really integrated two bad guys, Freud and Marx. Freud had some good things, but not many, and Marx and laid the basis, the intellectual basis, for all of the women's lib studies that have come out of there, most influential. 
Kate Millett had some, but I think she had, she's little known. Marcuse was one of these guys who fled. This was the beginning of the onslaught on, on the family in earnest. How did we get here today? It was dreamt of, thought about, planned, and gradually developed expertise in executing the breakdown of the family. Let me give you, this just came out, Kate Millett, this lady here. Her sister lived with her for a short while and was in on some of the stuff, agreeing with her at the beginning, but found it so bad she pulled back. Here's her, her sister, Valerie Mellet. You can Google this, it just came out in September. Kate Millett had a study group down in um, the village in New York, in Manhattan. This is in the 60s, she's getting her doctorate at Columbia, and she and a few others are beginning the, what later became the National Organization of Women. They had a meeting every week, and they started off with a chant. And here's the way the chant went. Why are we here today? To make revolution. What kind of revolution? The cultural revolution. Sorry, the thing here is... And how do we make the cultural revolution? By destroying the patriarchal family. How do we destroy the family? By destroying the American patriarch. How do we destroy the American patriarch? By taking away his power. How do we do that? By destroying monogamy. And how do we do that? By promoting promiscuity, eroticism, prostitution, and homosexuality. Planned back in the mid-60s. From there, these people, brilliant people, PhDs from Columbia, etc., etc., penetrated the law schools, the social sciences, the NEA, National Education Association, education committees at the state level, journalism schools, the taboos they began to break on TV each time. I remember as these taboos came, movies made, TV shows pushing things further and further, the music industry, not all of it, but significant parts of it. So that today, or recently you've had Lady Gaga and others who are just, oh, awful. TV in Hollywood. Key positions even in the Federal Civil Service. All of this has been going on the last 50, 60 years very deliberately. So what has come about, and one of the things actually that has not yet been harnessed, this is political and I, in the end I want to get away from the politics because most of you are, will be citizens and will in that be in politics, but probably won't spend most of your life in it. If you look at one of the big things that happened from NOW, Planned Parenthood, and there's interlocking board members and all of these, you had the development of the pill back in the 50s slash 60s. They got, this here is Justice Douglas, the famous case Griswold versus Connecticut, which was making contraception legal for all married couples. That was worked on deliberately by Planned Parenthood. They got it. Once they got that one, they then worked on the next one, which was to have the right, so-called political right, of access to contraception for all unmarrieds. And that was delivered to them by Justice Brennan. God help him for his Irish name and his Irish background. 
They got this by considering that they found these rights in the penumbra of the Constitution. And this gave us out of wedlock sex, quickly leading to out of wedlock births, quickly leading to a lot of unwanted babies, and in no time flat, the demand for abortion, which was granted also by with Brennan playing a key role. And then later on, we have right up now the Windsor decision with Justice Kennedy, another Irish Catholic background, Irish Catholic background. We're not doing too well on the Supreme Court as Irish. Huh? Uh, gives you the gay, so-called, whatever we want to call it. You can't call it gay, it's not marriage, but you know what I mean. We have to come up with the right term for this. And probably the greatest practitioner in my book of this Gramsci Marxist, by the way, he went to Columbia. His tutor was in his youth in Hawaii. He's a well-known communist leader, was his teenage tutor. Where did he go to college? Columbia University. What did he do after he graduated from Harvard? Editor of the Harvard Law Journal, black graduate of Harvard Law, editor, one of the most prized positions. He could have had any law job he wanted. What did he do? Went to practice community work in Chicago. Very deliberately knowing what he was about. And I think is one of the greatest practitioners of Gramsci Marxism, cultural Marxism, the world has ever seen. Low and slow. One of the things that these people are very good at is very patient, small, small, small. Never provoke too big a backlash. And of course with the courts, what we've really had in the last two years politically is a coup d'etat by the courts. Now, the Supreme Court may yet overturn what the federal judges have done recently, but we the people have spoken in over 30 states with changing the Constitution, defining marriage as being one man, one woman, and the courts have overthrown it. Founding fathers would be exercising their Second Amendment and would be up in arms, literally, with that. What we have going on here under your noses are two very different models of society. The West was built by the church on a model that essentially had the more we, these are the two models, and if I could take the theoretical model, the more worship of God, the more marriage, and the more children, the stronger society gets. The less worship, the less children, and the less marriage, the weaker society gets. And this here is very deliberately the objective of those who are opposed to the church. Less marriage, less worship, less children. It sounds crazy because it's so destructive, and yet it's exactly what is there. Cardinal George, his well-known phrase, I'm sure you all know it. The reason I'm quoting it, two congressmen at AEI, I was at an event two weeks ago, quoted this talking about what's going on in Congress around the country and said, it may be coming to this. They quoted Cardinal George who said, I will die in my bed. My successor, who I think just started yesterday or the day before, will die in jail and his successor will be martyred. You are going into tough times. Maximilian Colby prophesied on the United States. It's not comforting. 
He said, we won't suffer the worst, but we're really going to suffer. You are going to suffer. Not hopefully in your family life, but maybe, and, and not all of you will suffer. I don't know what, none of us can foretell. Maybe all of this will pass if we all become magnificent saints overnight, if all Catholics pray the rosary every night as the Austrians did to keep the communists out. And believe it or not, the Red Army withdrew from only, withdrew. You go back in history, in 53, it's, it seems astounding. Red Army had occupied after the Second World War and were in Austria. Austrians wanted them out of there. The Red Army never left anywhere. Enough Catholics in Austria were praying that by 53, one third of the country every night was praying to Our Lady for the withdrawal of the Red Army. And they withdrew without any reason. Well, we know the reason, but no obvious political or geopolitical or any other, any other reason, unless we do something like that. So what to do? Well, to ensure defeat, do nothing but stay on defense. And I think that's what most of Catholics, social conservatives, whatever you want to call it, we're all complaining and trying to block all this stuff. Well, not here at Christendom. You're building the future. You copped onto that ages ago. But not enough people out there are doing that. I think the key, the one big key thing to do, and I have only one public policy request, and I think if we get this one, we can get it. It's the religious freedom for the intact married family that worships God weekly to have its full freedom of cooperation with the teachers and with the pastors in raising their kids. Those three institutions, family, church, and school, they're the people-forming institutions, to have the full freedom to do that. This political freedom, I loved America. I'm an immigrant. When I came here, you could just feel the freedom all over the place, except in one area, and that was in education. All other Western countries, parents had freedom of choice, sending their kids to a public or a, or a non-public school, a private school, a religious school, not in America. And the roots of that go back to the 1820s and the know-nothings and the anti-Catholicism. And that major flaw has stayed in America, and it's time to get rid of it. In order to pull this off, growing the young, intact, married family that worships God weekly is the is the only future saving of America. That's the fundamental building block. The rest is crumbling, so you're already doing it here. Bring the rest of your colleagues out there in the world along with you. How will you do that? We'll get to that in a second. So this is the grand strategy. This is the moral good. The freedom of the best in America to remain the best. You go back to Aristotle, you go back to Aquinas and all the rest. What is freedom? Freedom is the right to do good. That's what we need. The political right, the political freedom to do the good that we're not only very good at, we're the best in the nation. A nation that won't give us that freedom is a nation bent on suicide. So the one political goal that I think is absolutely necessary is gaining that freedom for family, church, and school to cooperate fully on raising the kids and grow the young intact married family that worships God weekly. We do that, everything else falls in place, everything. But remember where we're heading. We're all heading home eventually. 
100 years from now, they'll all be in cemeteries somewhere around here. It won't be that long before I am. And God set everything in motion so that he'd have a huge family with him in heaven forever. You're about to get into this stage of life and hopefully bring on thousands, millions more kids on into the future. This is the rebuilding of America that's happening here. How do you do it? You've heard this, you'll hear it again, you'll hear it to the end of your life. St. John, who was there at the cross with Our Lady, and here he is as an old man. And when he was old and decrepit and had to be pulled around, brought to the thing, we all, we've heard this many times. What was his sermon? It became very short and always the same. Love one another. That's what, that's what family is all about. It will give you the cross. Doing this, but through the cross, comes an even deeper love. And from that, everything else comes if we embrace it. So remember, as you go up the aisle on that happiest of happy days that hopefully is not too far off for all you young folk, keep in mind uh, a saying or a, an instance that a man who's about to be beatified next week, Don Alvaro del Portillo, who succeeded St. Jose Maria as the president of Opus Dei and was his, his great helper through it all. He was in New York about 20 years ago and there was a young couple, a big get together and all sorts of questions and answers and all the rest. And a young couple were presented them and just came up. And let's say their name was John and Jill, I forget their name. But he turned to them and was talking to them about uh, the happy future that's in front of them. But also reminded, he said, John, look at Jill. She is your Calvary. These words are not exact, but the sentiment is. And Jill, turning to John, he is your Calvary. Keep that in mind. Love and the cross come together. Every priest knows that. That's their celibate route. They pick up a cross cross of not having one to belong to, not having one to come home to, but they pick it up joyfully. We have the one to come home to, but the cross is there too, and we both need each other. Together, together, we will restore, and the future of the church lies only in the family. The future of the world lies only in the family. And only in the family that loves and that can bring other families. And this is your vocation. This is your vocation. To live your life in the Blessed Trinity. To see in your spouse, not your spouse, but another son or daughter of God. To raise children whom you see every day, not as your kids, but as God's children. If you could ever dig that deep into your mind, others, you will have such a joyful, happy family. And you, most of you have probably come from families like that, maybe all of you.
But you have to live that so deeply that those around you in this pagan world you're now entering, that's very similar to the Romans, so that the American pagans looking at you will say, see how they love one another. And they'll follow you. God bless you. Okay, we have five, ten minutes for questions. We'll say ten minutes max. I'm sure you all want to get out of here. Anybody got any questions? Or is there just, yeah, there's a mic here if anybody, probably best if you come up to a mic. Thank you. Thank you very much for your talk. One of the things that I see a lot of aspirant students here ask about is how do I make an impact? I know you presumed most of us wouldn't be actively seeking political life, but when so many of the figures are financed by John D. Rockefeller or come from places like Columbia or Harvard, uh, what do you think would be a practical recommendation for Christendom students here that want to make a difference in the direction that you ascribe? Harness your talents. Between your talents and your temperament, you've got a sense inside you. You've got to figure out what your biggest gift is. You've been given them. Go back to the parable of the ten talents. What's the biggest talents you have? Harness them the way you're made. Then by living that out, believe me, you're going to come bumping up against this stuff all over the place. Uh, in the workplace, you've got to learn to be savvy. As smart as serpents, simple as doves. Um, the main thing, look, the West, the West is collapsing, already has collapsed. You know, the momentum, we're at 46%, of, it's going to continue down. Uh, Don Renzo, and I'm inclined to agree with him, he's preparing family, he said, we're going into the catacomb eras. Cardinal George thinks we're heading to martyrdom. It's going to be tough, but keep in mind, most early Christians weren't martyred. Most early Christians were businessmen, farmers, and all the rest, and that's how the church grew. A few will be called to tough times, but most of us won't. What you really have to do is live your family life so well. Pray, give, love in relationships equals time. If you don't give God time, you don't love him. If you don't give your spouse time, you don't love her. You don't give your kids time, you don't love them. Take the time with your spouse, with your kids, and with God, and the rest will follow. 
So you've spoken a lot about you know, defending marriage by building up the family and in society. Um, and I know you said you didn't go into the political realm specifically, but I've noticed uh, among um, conservatives and conservative Catholics, um, especially in you know, um, the Republican Party, that there's a sense of almost despair about um, being able to defend um, marriage and, and the family politically, especially after all of the Supreme Court rulings that, that you've mentioned and all the damage that's been done. Do you think that there is actually a chance that we can still um, defend the family and, and defend marriage in uh, the political sphere? Oh, or yeah. is that completely And I didn't gone? completely, this is tight. I want to link your question to the prior one. What do you do? Look, those of you who've got very high IQs and have been studying hard and can get into good graduate schools, follow them. Get the best possible education you can. You're slackers if you don't. The parable of the 10 talents holds. Get your PhDs and occupy, this is for, not for everybody, but those of you who have the talent. Occupy professorships at the state colleges. Teaching is absolutely critical. The left, the left didn't go, well, the left went all down, the bad guys. They deliberately went after the destruction of the family. Low and slow. Coming back, actually, I think I heard an analysis by the people from the National Organization of Marriage over the weekend. There's a high likelihood, by no means certain, the Supreme Court may come down right on the Windsor issue and on the uh, so-called gay marriage issue. What can we do? Leadership? But there's a deep flaw. I never got involved in the fight on the homosexual marriage issue for one big reason. I laid it out at Heritage when I was there. It was a big meeting. I won't name the names who were there. Many in the Republic is beside the point. This was back about 15 years ago when the gay issue was coming up. I said, look, gay marriage is on the surface. What's really going on underneath is what's happening among heterosexuals. And I'd already written a paper and I reminded them of them. Uh, the homosexualization of heterosexual sex. That's what happens when people contracept. The vast majority of people are contracepting. So I said, you're on the surface of a storm on the Atlantic trying to stop it, where underneath the Atlantic current deeply is pushing the whole ocean across up towards Ireland, England, Norway, etc. The whole drift of sexuality, even among Catholics, Look, we're talking about fighting things politically. If Catholics don't live and talk, and learn how to talk winsomely and winningly, not harshly, they never win harshly, on love, on the sexual, on family, there's nothing government can do. We're going to the wrong place. Over the weekend, at a conference, a political conference I was at, people were complaining about the Obama administration who cut back on abstinence money. Good thing to complain about, it was a bad thing to do. But I asked all the people there, I said, hands up the last time you heard somebody in the church preach about chastity to teenagers, to the parents, preach about fidelity in marriage. Two hands went up from about 200. If we go to government for love, and we're not teaching and preaching it here, we're crazy. 
We're as mixed up as the left are, just in a different way. The fundamentals of love and of truth and goodness don't come from government. The government is the fruit of the citizens handed to it. So the, okay, enough said on that. I think you get the, the main thing. So the huge work that's to be done is the courage, but be careful. The talk has always got to be charitable. You remember our Lord with the woman at the well? Five husbands, none of them are husband. You're way out there by charts. And just look at that, the way he pulled her in. The winsomeness, the love, the charity. Converted her, that's what you have to do. We won't do it by beating them up. I like the Irish chalet. I can take out my Irish lady very easily and crack people on the head. And I love a good fight. I'm looking forward to one in Ireland with my sociology professors who have all gone crazy. But it's not going to do any good. I've got to learn how to be winsome, too. In many ways, you already answered my question. Um, right now, the fight of defining marriage, redefining marriage is going on across the country. But would you say that we've already redefined marriage through divorce and contraception in America? Like the rabbit use of it? Sure. Um, you remember the chart I had on the, among those ever married, you know, depending on the number of sexual partners, I think one of the most important pieces of social science information I think I've ever come across. Chastity, by the way, here's something you can all do, and this is very political, just as Kate Millett was very political when she said, how will we destroy the patriarchal family? How will we destroy monogamy? Remember the answer? Google that. Google Mallory Millet. This is her sister. Just Google Mallory Millet, and you'll see this thing will come out, and you can get that quote again. What did they go after? Destroying chastity. The single biggest political act you can do is to be chaste and to get your fellow 20-year-olds all around the country to embrace chastity. There is nothing more deeply political today than that. 